Hello, speech lovers. It's Tony here. Got a great episode today. It features Anna Quinlan, the Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist turned novelist turned best-selling author. One of her commencement speeches was actually made into a book that sold 1.5 million copies. And it's a fantastic episode. But this bit at the front is the avocado bit. From the outset, this podcast has been supported by Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocados, taking the ordinary to the extraordinary, a family of farmers striving to improve everyone's relationship with avocados. And you may have heard my son promote the Green Skin and Purple Skin Avocado last week, and he made an error, we thought, in the website. But the news has come through. It's an error no more. The website address has changed to the Jack-approved greenskinavocados.com.au. Visit that website today for some avo inspiration. Whether it's the avo pesto pasta recipe or the avocado tuna boat or the avocado and pulled pork, greenskinavocados.com.au is a place where the king of fruits is properly saluted. Check it out now. The Funk Soul, brother. Greenskin Avocados. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the government yet. Speak Ola with Tony Wilson. Hello, welcome to the ninth episode of the Speak Ola podcast. And what an episode. Our guest, Anna Quinlan who won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1992. She was just the third woman to have a column on the op-ed page of the New York Times. And then when she finished at the Times, she had a column at Newsweek, and she's written novels. She's written nine of them, uh, the most recent being Alternate Sides. She's also written non-fiction, including Nanaville, a memoir about becoming a grandmother, Her status as a columnist meant she became a sought-after commencement speaker, and then once she started delivering them, she became an even more sought-after commencement speaker. In fact, it would be difficult to find anyone, perhaps save Oprah, who has delivered more great commencement speeches in the 21st century, and a couple of them are truly famous. One of them, at Villanova in 2000, became the text of a short book called A Short Guide to a Happy Life, and it sold 1.5 million copies. Incredible, really. But her novels and nonfiction have also appeared on bestseller lists, and she really is one of the notable authors in American life. She lives in New York. She's been locked down in Pennsylvania in recent times, and we spoke to each other via Zencaster. She even went and got herself a headset for me because I think it makes nicer sound, although she did mention that CBS don't ask her to get a headset. So, Speakola, more demanding than CBS. Anna Quinlan, thank you so much for the effort and this wonderful interview. 
Nicola. Well, my guest today has had a life in words of many different types. She's written non-fiction books. She's written nine novels. She's won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. But in commencement speech terms, she really is the high priestess. She's been one of the most in-demand commencement speakers across the country for several decades now, beginning with her famous speech at Villanova in 2000, and the one that we're going to focus on today, which is the 2017 speech at Washington University. Anna Quinlan, thanks for being a guest. Thanks, Tony. Happy to be here. So the commencement speech form, which has got such a rich tradition in America, it's less big here in Australia. What was your first exposure to it? Was it your own graduation day? Well, one of the things that I say when I give a a commencement speech is that the very distinguished anthropologist, Margaret Mead, gave my commencement speech when I graduated from Barnard College in 1974. And I honestly cannot remember a word she said. Um, And I I think that that's a good template from which to launch yourself in these speeches. You're not the centerpiece of any commencement. I mean, as I've said before, most people are there to hear two words, the first and last name of someone they love or their own first and last name. And, And to some extent, you're incidental. And so it's really important to remember that at the same time that I think there's probably no other time when it's more important that you bring your A game. You, there's a certain kind of responsibility that falls upon you when you do these speeches. And, and I always take it extremely seriously, which is why I never do more than one a year. There have been years where two or three different institutions have asked me to do it, and I, I just can't do that because it's, it's hard work and I want to do the best job I can. You really do have a tremendous record with these sorts of speeches. I think you gave your first one, according to Wikipedia, way back in 1999, and you still called on to give one almost every year. There have been dozens that have followed. What's the job of the commencement speaker? What's the essential task? Um, The writing is very important. Um, And I don't just say that because I'm a writer. I have, during the course of my career, known two people who were first-rate extemporaneous speakers. The former governor of New York, Mario Cuomo, who was an extraordinary orator, and Hillary Clinton. And both of them are people who could speak extemporaneously for 30 or 40 minutes. And if you transcribed what they'd said, it would sound as though they had had a prepared text in front of them. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that I'm on task, that I don't forget anything that I want to say or that has occurred to me. And so um, I spend a lot of time on the writing. And one of the things that I try very hard to do is to speak to some eternal verities in a slightly counterintuitive way. The commencement speech that you mentioned at Washington University in St. Louis, which I gave two years ago, is a good case in point. Because there was a general feeling abroad in the land here in America that these poor kids weren't going to get the same kind of opportunities that their parents 
had had, that the economy didn't favor them, the job market didn't favor them, and, and that at some level we should all feel vaguely sorry for them. I couldn't have disagreed more. I, I, I think that, that all of us over time have lived in societies that need to be remade in some pivotal way, and that not having the same bedrock that your parents had isn't a tragedy, it's an opportunity. Um, and that's what I tried to probe in that speech as I wrote it. And it seems to me you did that by talking about definitions of success. There can be a different marker of success with this generation. That's something that's been in, in quite a few of your commencement speeches, what, what the value of a life is. Well, I, I mean, I think that's one of the essential questions uh, that we face all the time and that you face at a threshold level when you're finishing university and looking out there and deciding, you know, how you're going to proceed. Um, I, I remember giving the commencement speech at Kenyon College, which is where my daughter went to school, and giving a speech in which I said not to listen to those who were giving them a certain kind of definition of the good life. And um, one, uh, one mother came up to me afterwards and said, I, I, I really think that sort of idealism is ill-placed at a moment like this. And I thought, well, agree to disagree. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, you know, I just think these are the big questions that that we wind up asking ourselves. And and if you're not going to ask them at, at critical moments in your progression through life, when are you going to ask them? Well, the way I discovered your commencement speeches, Anna, was uh, one at Villanova in 2000. And it became a really successful book, A Short Guide to a Happy Life. It sold over a million copies. Can you tell us a bit about that speech, Anna? <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's a bit of an interesting story. Villanova is a Catholic college. My family, I'm from Philadelphia, which is where Villanova is located, has a long historic history there. Um, my great uncle has an honorary degree from Villanova. My uncle, who was on the board of trustees, has an honorary. And I was going to be the third generation of my family to get an honorary degree from Villanova. But when the president of the college asked me to give the commencement address, I warned him that I had had a pretty checkered history with Catholic institutions. I am, in fact, Catholic. I also am, have been very outspoken about the need to ordain women in the church, and I am very outspoken about favoring legal abortion in America. Nevertheless, he felt that they were an independent college and that, therefore, they could ask me to give the commencement speech and go ahead with that. And um, about two weeks beforehand, my father called me to let me know, sub rosa, that there was a great deal of trouble with that, that there were big ticket donors who weren't going to fulfill their pledges to the college, that there were demonstrations uh, planned, and that the cardinal in Philadelphia had asked that I be disinvited. And so I actually uh, wrote to the president of the college immediately and stepped down as the commencement speaker and, and as an honorary degree recipient. If I had been asked to speak at Villanova 
in an endowed lectureship or for an event, for any other kind of event, I would have gone ahead and done it. But a commencement is about the graduates. And I felt like um, what was going to erupt uh, would have shadowed their day in a way that I would never want to do. So I didn't give the speech, although I'd written this speech. And um, about a week later, I got a, a, a lovely email from a young woman who said that she had been so terribly disappointed that I had not been her commencement speaker. And did I have any idea of what I might say? And I said to her, well, not only do I have an idea, I, I wrote it, here it is. Yeah. And um, in that way that that emails can become a kind of a, a rhetorical pyramid scheme, she sent it to 10 people and they sent it to 10 people and they sent it to 10 people. And in a couple of months, people were saying to me, wow, I love that speech you gave at Villanova. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually so many people said they loved it that my editor at Random House decided we should do it as a little book. And as you said, it's, it's been in print for 20 years and it's sold about a million and a half copies at this point. Well, it makes you a self-help author, Anna. I, I, I've written some novels and nonfiction as well. Do you do you feel like there's a stigma to self-help? Is, is, is that do you, do you like it when you get called a self-help author? Sometimes I'm introduced as the only person who has ever had books on the New York Times fiction, nonfiction, and self-help bestseller lists. And there's always this little twitch between my shoulder (laughs) blades when they get to self-help, in part because I'm not sure I ever help anyone with anything. Um, I just, I, I did this book and people seem to respond to it in the same way that if you write a good commencement speech, they respond to that. Well, I think it's some sort of ability you have to um, intertwine the personal and the political. I, I feel like that's your great skill, and and that's on show in in all these speeches, um, and also in in your commentary with the Times. And I've had the privilege of listening to the, that amazing column you wrote called "Goodbye, Doctor Spock" about about I guess parenting and and listening to other voices in your parenting, and and the, the voices you really should be listening to might be you know the ones in your house. Um, but that that ability. To, to hear the, the meaningful things in life. Um, do, do you have a theory on, on how that came to you? Was it, was it part of your upbringing? I, was, I started working as a reporter when I was 18 years old. And, and part of being a reporter is always saving string, always looking around. I mean, a lot of being a reporter is seeing, not writing. And a lot of being a novelist is seeing and not writing. It's it's kind of opening your eyes to the world in the way that we do when we're children, and then we sort of forget to do until we have children. And and so I think it came to me as part of my as part of my professional work in a variety of ways. I mean, people will say to me, you know, I knew that. I just hadn't thought of it in a long time. And I think, well, you know, my professional obligation is to know it and think about it all the time. So it, it, it's kind of a, a natural progression for me of what I do. And in terms of the, the personal being political, the personal is the only thing that's political. I mean, you know, I have, I have two grandchildren 
whose mother was born in Beijing, and one grandson who is biracial. So, you know, if you start talking to me about, you know, how people are demonized racially, or as the granddaughter of Italian immigrants, you start talking to me about how immigrants should be kept out of my country. I I mean, I respond viscerally to those things, not only because they're, they're wrong, they're evil, but because they, they impact the people I love or the people I have loved. And I, and I really think that's where, you know, the, the most powerful political impulses come from. I, I think, you know, you look at somebody like John McCain, for example, in the United States, with whom I disagreed on practically every significant issue. But it was always clear that McCain was acting out of a deep well of patriotism engendered during five years in a Vietnamese prison. And, and I think that that dovetailing of, of what's happened in your life and the politics of your country can engender the most, the most powerful feelings. I don't mean that you have to have personally experienced things to have the correct political position on them. If if that were the case, then we'd be in deep trouble, for example, with feminist politics, because most of our male compatriots wouldn't have experienced the kind of gender discrimination that we women have. But I do think that when people would talk about my column combining the two, I, I wouldn't think, oh, gosh, yes, that's what I do. I would think, well, of course, that's in me every day. Absolutely. If we're going to focus on a speech, and I thought we might focus on the Washington University speech just because it's the most recent. They're all outstanding in different ways, but this one particularly spoke to me. I guess I was a, a, a driven kid who had his checklists growing up, and, and you decided to start that speech kind of addressing that point. Are they particularly gifted kids, the ones that you were talking to that day? Yeah. I mean, WashU is a very competitive school at this point. They take, I think, probably 15 or 16 percent of those who apply. It's a lovely place with terrific faculty and students who take their work very seriously, just as I did when I was a college student. I, too, was an extremely driven Um, student, an extremely driven person. And I think that at a certain point, it became clear to me that some of the paths that those of us who seek success follow don't necessarily result in in satisfactory lives or even satisfactory professional lives. Uh, I've, I've been keenly aware since I left the New York Times where I was an op-ed page columnist and the whole world put up its hands and shrieked that one did not do that, that that we tend to have a, a kind of a truncated view of human behavior that that's essentially a ladder. There's a ladder in front of you and you should climb it rung after rung after rung. And I'm not sure that that necessarily makes not only for a satisfying life, but for interesting work. As I said in that speech, you know, there's all kinds of people who have done extraordinary things 
by not doing what was considered the right thing. You know, I mean, Picasso could paint a still life as well as anybody out there. And he jettisoned that very early on and did something that much of the world thought was absolutely insane. You know, William Faulkner wrote The Sound and the Fury, which is an unbelievably audacious novel, but one that completely perplexed many readers. So I, I, I think there's there sometimes is a tendency to think that there is a right way to do things and that the right way um, doesn't necessarily bring satisfaction. And not only that, but it, it it's often antithetical to greatness. Was there a path that you felt you were set on, maybe with parental expectations? Um, did you feel like you had to take a brave step early on? Yeah, I mean, my family, my, uh, my father's family um, are, are quite prosperous Irish people who came to this country in the 1700s. Their idea of success was not being a newspaper reporter. Um, um, my grandmother once said to me, uh, women who, who work for newspapers are fast, um, an expression that you don't hear anymore. And, and how she thought that was going to put a 16 year old girl off the path still perplexes me. So just becoming a reporter, uh, was something that, that I think they thought was, was not, not really not really happening. And my understanding is that your journey to, you know, this very prestigious column in the New York Times that that you volunteered at one point to do City Hall um, for a part of journalism that maybe some people thought wasn't your strength. Is that is that true? Well, uh, there are certain stations of the cross that go along with succeeding at the time. So at least there were when I was uh, a young reporter there. And and there was uh, the perception that I was kind of a dab hand with a simile and a metaphor, but I wasn't a hard news reporter. And so um, I, I, I went um, down to City Hall for two years where you churn out a lot of hard news just to show them that I could. I wanted to be more well-rounded than my feature background would suggest. Although it was not in the service of becoming an op-ed page columnist, it never for a million years occurred to me that I would someday be an op-ed page columnist. I mean, you know, I was I was the youngest person to ever uh, have an op-ed page column at the Times, and I was the only woman on the page. So, I didn't seem like an obvious candidate. How did they pick you? What, do you remember the first column you had to write, and and sort of the decision to to give you the job was? Do you know? Do you have a sense of why you you were given it? Yeah, um, I was given it because I was a woman. Uh, the Times had settled a class action suit two years before I went to the paper. It, six women had sued the Times, charging that it didn't um, hire promote or pay women in parity with men. And they had settled that suit and hired a lot of us really fast and pushed some of us up the greasy pole a lot faster than they might have otherwise. And I was sort of exhibit A. 
I was the woman. Um, I'd done uh, a reporting column called About New York for three years, which I'd, I'd done a pretty creditable job on. And then I wrote, after I had two children in two years, I wrote a personal column once a week called Life in the 30s. And the combination of those two things, I think, convinced them that I might be able to handle an op-ed page column. Also, the uh, deputy publisher, who later became the publisher and is now publisher and chairman emeriti, was a friend and felt very strongly um, that I would be an asset to the page since the page was occupied entirely by white men. Well, you did a stellar job on the page for a long time, and I guess that's the reason that you ended up a, a commencement speech giver. You were a prominent name in America in giving thoughts about all sorts of things. I think that's true, and I also think, once again, that that people were realizing in the same way that it's very clear in newspapers, magazines, and in book publishing right now in the United States that we need more voices of people of color. I think at the time that I started to be asked to do this, to write the column and to give speeches, that it was clear that we needed to hear more from women, that our voices had not been front and center in a way that was important or useful. And of course, at I, I gave a number of commencement speeches at single-sex institutions that were all women, but increasingly, as I looked out at the student body at any commencement at which I was speaking, at least half of the graduates were women. So it, it, it seemed, I think, to reflect the experience of the students in a way that was changing during the course of my professional career and my personal life. Getting back to the Washington University speech, you, you do start with this idea that greatness is achieved um, with courage. And you gave the great example there about Picasso. But I guess the next job is to drag it back to the students themselves and the sense that they probably have that they're not going to be a Picasso. So, so what's this bit of the speech? Well, I, I do think you immediately have to say, look, I understand that putting yourself out there for most of us is not going to result in, you know, lifelong notoriety in the way it it has for the people that I mentioned. But what it does result in is a life of authenticity. And um, one of the things that I say to them in the speech is that when they're deciding what to do, where to live, how to live, what job to take, they need to constantly be testing whether that's because prevailing and conventional opinion is that that's what they ought to do and how they ought to behave, or whether it's what they really want, that that life is too short and too wonderful to wind up doing this kind of imitation that sometimes society asks of us. And did you ever feel, when you were doing the column, and you, and you say that one of the most difficult decisions for you was to to leave the column because it's not something that people had ever done. I'm not sure if they've done it since. Um, but was there a sense that you were confined by that? Did, did you need to blow something up? I like to do any job until I feel like I'm competent at it. 
And then I feel like it's time to find something that scares me again. I, I know how to write a creditable column. It may not always be the best column I've ever written, but I know how to do that. And when I get to that point in my work, I always feel like it's time for, for some sort of new challenge. And, and so that's, that's what I did with the Times column. I circled back and did the back page of Newsweek five years after I left the Times for nine years and was able to combine doing the column with writing novels, which was something that was very challenging when I was writing two columns a week for the New York Times. And I was very glad that I had circled back because I would have been hard-pressed to deal with not having a column on and after September 11th, 2001. But again, I felt so I, I had done what I'd come there to do, and, and again, that it was time to move on. What was the column you wrote that week in, in 2001? Do you remember what um, approach you took? I wrote six columns. It was the only time I've ever written six columns about the same subject because I always feel like columnists um, – columnists ride their hobby horses too much and they readers get bored with the predictability but with that it was history and I had to write over and over again and I can't remember what the very yeah I do it was a column called imagining the Hansons um wow I'm gonna I'm going to seize up just thinking about it. I looked at the list of the people who were on one of the planes, and it had the, the full names of these two people. And then underneath, it had the name of their daughter. And it said, and with each of them, it had the age. And with her, it said two. And I, I just sort of as a mother, imagine the lead up to that flight, how, you know, you think about the things that you need to bring on the plane so that her ears won't get stopped up. And you think about the coloring book and the crayons so that she won't get bored because you're flying all the way to Los Angeles. And, you know, maybe she has a little backpack and so on and so forth. And the whole the column was around the idea of just a- imagining um this family um getting on the plane and then thinking about all the people who in the aftermath of those terrible events did good and how the evil that seemed to overshadow everything was being itself overshadowed by good it was it was both a terrible time and in some ways a beautiful time in new york because of the way people came together and and that was that was the first thing that i wrote right out of the box has there been any sense of the virus doing the same job in new york or, or does it feel more divisive at this time 
Uh, not in New York. I mean, I'm sure that you've read or heard about the fact that at seven o'clock every evening for the first couple of months, everyone would come out into the street or open their windows and bang pots and pans and blow horns and cheer unrelentingly for the healthcare workers. And I think there is a level in particularly in New York City, at which it has brought people together to help each other. But it's, as you know, terribly divisive through the rest of the country. I mean, we really are a nation that believes that if you're wearing a mask, it means that you're uh, a, a socialist in, insurrectionary. It's, it, this is an extremely difficult time in the history of um, my country, and not just because of the virus, and not just because of uh, what may be finally a successful movement for racial justice, but because uh, there is there is such a profound sense of division that is fomented at the very top of the government. Was well, interesting. Getting back to the speech, Anna, you talk about fear and, and personal fear and, and having courage with decision-making in what your life is going to be. But then the link is to fear in general, and, and you use politics as the first example that that we often live within a politics governed by fear and politicians being frightened. <laughs> I, I look back on saying that now and I realize I didn't even know what I was talking about in terms of how profoundly profoundly terrible that could become how how utterly divisive it could be you know i've thought back since we first started talking on some of the speeches that have had an effect on me during the course of my lifetime and most of them are speeches that that say things that we all know uh, about about courage and and uh, patriotism and but I circle back over and over again have for many years to Lincoln's second inaugural in which he uses the phrase the better angels of our nature. It doesn't mean anything that we haven't all talked about so many times, which is being the best selves that we can be, but putting it that way, the better angels of our nature is so powerful. And I, I, cannot, I cannot support or respect or follow any leader who does not call upon the better angels of our nature. That's really, that's really what we all are called to do and what they are called to evoke in us. And I think it's what I try to do over and over again in speeches to say, find the better angels, find the better angels inside yourself. Is it a rectifiable situation? Um, we look, I look at the sort of the cauldron that is social media and and what our wonderful Australian Rupert Murdoch has uh, bequest, <laughs> bequeathed to the United States. Is this, 
a problem that is fixable? Will will a less less fear mongering president change things quickly in the US? I think it's fixable by a new generation of leadership. I mean, when I stepped down at Newsweek in 2009, my last column said that it was time for people of my generation to step aside, not to disappear, not to necessarily quit their jobs, but to open up the leadership pathways to a new generation of people, a generation of people who are digital natives and so have a better sense of how to negotiate social media and some of these technological challenges than I do, than we do. And I think that's when it's going to change. I mean, younger people in my country are more pluralistic. They take for granted uh, a kind of a, a, a mix of people and ideas and ways of living that are not what I necessarily grew up with. And I think that they're going to make uh, a huge difference. You know, those of us who are who are feminists and have a, a kind of a pipeline to one another in in the United States right now um, tend to be very excited about the, the leadership in New Zealand. Um, uh, we, we look at her. I, I mean, when she rode when she rode a bicycle to the hospital when she was in labor, I knew so many women who texted each other and said, "You go, girl." And I think yeah. that generation of leadership will rise to the top in the United States and will be more inclined in many ways to do the right thing. Well, Jacinda is, you talk about great extemporaneous speakers, and she's certainly one of those. There's a speech she gave to striking teachers that we put up on Speakola that's just an amazing example of empathy and eloquence. I'd, I'd urge anyone to check it out. And then when she does the written speech, like the one she did after the, the terrorism attacks in Christchurch, you know, she can nail that as well. She's an unbelievable talent. I admire her from afar. Yes, we may all be shipping over there soon as the one place Australians are allowed to visit. Staying on this topic of fear, um, you, you you talk about the fear of offence in the speech uh, and about the nature of freedom and, and free speech. And this, this becomes, I guess, one of the questions of our age. Um, as, as someone who's been a columnist, do you, do you ever feel hemmed in now by the the response that will come to to anything you say or think? I'm keenly aware of the fact that when I was a columnist, there were a few issues which I didn't touch. I only wrote one column self-consciously about race, in part because I didn't feel qualified. That goes back to the question of the personal being the political Am I personally in a position to understand what it, what it's like to be a person of color in the United States? And I think the answer that I gave myself in an interior fashion was no. I didn't write about the state of Israel because I felt like it was a kind of a third rail and that there were other people who could carry water for and against. So I, I, I was aware of that fact. At the same time, I feel like in the academy, if students come out of college not understanding how to argue opposing views because they've been in a, in a 
echo chamber in which everyone is preaching to the converted, that's a serious problem. I mean, it's a serious problem professionally for those who are going to have to someday argue opposing views, for those who want to become attorneys or jurists or political figures. But it's a serious problem in terms of how we talk about the hard issues in our society. And I think we have to draw a line in colleges and universities and also in our everyday lives where we honor civility and yet try to engage uh, across the aisle, if you will. And we're in a moment where that seems to be profoundly difficult. I, I always think everything in, in life is a dialectic, that we go from thesis to antithesis to synthesis. And I think in terms of public dialogue at the moment, particularly with the role social media plays, we're not at synthesis yet. We're at antithesis in a lot of ways. And and that's what's led to some of the so-called cancel culture that we've seen around the world and some of the difficulties that we have engaging um, with people who disagree with us. Well, one of the comforts I've found in curating the Specola website is that you get a trip through different eras and the issues of different eras. So, for example, reading something like John Kerry's speech to the Senate committees after the Vietnam War or towards the end of the Vietnam War when when he says the line, um, who wants to be the last person to die for mm. a mistake, um, mm. which is just this beautiful speech. And, and you do get a sense that the world really has faced problems the whole way along. It's not like this is something new. Or, or do you think this is something new? Um, do, do you, from what you saw of things like the response to Vietnam, does, does what, we're, what we're seeing now in the kind of what I call this kind of the blue and red divide in America, is it, is it something new? Well, there's no question that the role of Twitter for example, and Instagram and and online information is something new. I mean, at the time that you're talking about when Kerry gave that very memorable speech, people's only orientation towards the war was what they were reading in either their local or in some cases a national newspaper, although that was a time when if you subscribe to the New York Times in the middle of a middle America, you got it three days later um, in the mail. And and evening news broadcasts, which were on every night with no news in between. So so the this kind of plethora of outlets and news and, and bombarding is is completely new in certain ways. But at, at some level there's kind of nothing new under the sun. I mean if you want to you know, run a speech, run some of Joe McCarthy's speeches about communism. You know, they'll show you that jingoism has a long, long life. Or Oswald Mosley, people enwrapped in England in the 1930s with his speeches where he's arguing that a fascist England will be a better England. It's, it's astonishing. Or even Hillary Rodham's commencement speech at Wellesley when she graduated in, I think it was 1969, which so offended the sitting senator from Massachusetts, uh, Senator Brooke, who was sitting on the podium, where she talks about 
everything that's wrong with the, the society that's being bequeathed to them by their elders. We you have know. a little a little snippet of that speech as part of the Speakola theme song. There you go. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, I do think that wrestling with the question of how we deal with social media is one of those the technology got ahead of the thinking about the technology and we're still running in place to try to catch up in terms of what we can trust, how it affects us, how important it will be in our lives. Again, we're in an antithesis moment with that and I'll be interested to see where we wind up in the synthesis. In terms of the fear motif that runs through the Washington University speech, you, you move from fear of politicians and I guess in society to the fear of parents um, and you bring them in and it's this generational point that you're making at the start of our chat about our fear that our kids won't have a better world. What was the thinking there? Well, it, it was the question of what it means to do better. I, I do think that that certainly from my father's generation and to some extent for mine, doing better meant, well, look, when I was growing up uh, as uh, an Irish kid, it was ditch digger to cop to, to lawyer to judge in four generations. That's how you were going to do better, right? You know, more prestige, more money. That, that was a better job. And I think that the standard of doing better ought to be better. You know, I think if these kids are the kids who grow up with some parity between men and women, that they will have done better than my generation. I think if they're kids who grow up thinking that the world is filled with people who are gay and straight and non-binary and whatever, they will have done better. And certainly, if they can bridge some of these racial divides, uh, they will have done better. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the McMansion. Uh, but I, I, I am a big fan of living in a world in which you and all of your family and all of the possible permutations of your kids um, can be comfortable. You bring the speech home, uh, and I guess you, you, you reach a, a sort of a rhetorical crescendo with this idea of audacity. Talking a little bit about delivery, and, and you say over and over, it is audacious, and it is audacious, and you can feel you're, you're gathering the crowd here. How much is delivery a part of writing? How would this part have come to be? Well, that's the second part. You know, you write the speech, and then you start to, to do it aloud. And of course, what you find is that you have sentences that are way too long, so you can barely breathe at the end of them. You find that you have sentences that don't sound conversational enough. I mean, you don't want to dumb down your writing, but at the same time, you want to be talking to people and not at them. And so finding a way to hit that kind of mark where it, it, you feel like you're speaking to people is is one of the things that you work on. And then I am a big fan of, of a kind of a rhythm and meter to my work. I always have been, even when it's not 
in speeches, when it's just in in my novels or in my columns. I like to have a certain kind of rhythm and meter. And when I started giving speeches, that, that tendency came in really handy because it just fit with, with giving a speech where you worked up kind of a, 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 a tempo that the crowd followed along with you. Is there someone who taught you rhythm? I actually had an English teacher who got me to read out a page of The Leopard. Giuseppe de Lampedusa's uh-huh. The Leopard. And he said, listen to the sentence length here and the rhythm of writing. And it was pretty much the most important um, artistic day of my life. Um, is there anyone who helped you with this or is it just weight of reading and education? As a Catholic school child, I spent hours and hours setting poems to memory. Daffodils by Wordsworth, uh, The Children's Hour, um, Once More Into the Breach. And I think learning all those poems gave me a sense of rhythm. And frankly, um, the Latin Catholic Mass, which I grew up with, which has an internal rhythm, despite the fact that a lot of it we didn't even understand while I was repeating it. I th- while we were repeating it, I think gave me a sense of rhythm. Well, you can certainly feel it, and you can feel the audience starting to get involved with applause. And do you remember the audience that day? Was or do you remember the conditions that day at Washington University? I do. I remember them very well because I sometimes say that the single most important decision. Uh, a college president has to make is whether to have commencement inside or out. Having it inside is very unpopular. Everybody wants to have it outside on the field, on the quad. And the night before I was at a dinner with the other honorary degree recipients and the weather forecast looked dire. And the president of the college, Mark Wrighton, was going back and forth with whether he should have it inside somewhere or have it out on this beautiful quad. And at five o'clock in the morning, I woke up to a thunderstorm so overwhelming, it, it felt biblical. And it lasted for about a half an hour. And it was something. The whole hotel building was shaking. And by 8.30, there was the bluest sky you've ever seen and so sunshiny. And we marched in procession across the campus and into, um, into that uh, lawn. And I, I was just so grateful to be able to be outside for that. But uh, the other thing I remember is there's sometimes when you're giving a speech and the audience is almost like an organism. It's it's almost like one thing and you can feel the one thing breathing and you can feel if it's with you. It, it's very powerful and I don't know how to describe it specifically or eloquently, but you're standing up there and you're speaking and you can feel the attention. And that was one of those times when I could feel the attention. And you bring it home, welcome to my world is the last paragraph of the speech. A really, I think a really beautiful ending to the one at Washington University. When, when you think of the, 
the many commencements you've given, do you, do you feel like this is the best, or do you think that the Villanova one that's um, that's uh, that sold a million copies is is that your favourite? Is it? Do you, are they all special? <laughs> you know that that old parental cliche. I don't really have a favourite. I mean, they've each been a little bit the same and a lot different, and they've been different for different moments. I, I don't really have a favorite, although I gave the commencement address at Smith, oh, many years ago, because my children were rather young. I think Maria was maybe six or seven, which meant the boys would have been 10 and 12. And they were with me and they were sitting off to one side, but in the front row. And afterwards, uh, they said to me, Mommy, that was a good speech. And, you know, there isn't anything better than having your children say, Mommy, that was a good speech. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm, it's certainly, there's certainly no one better at this form than you. Do you get sick of being asked? Are you going to start saying no to comm- commencements at some point? I don't think so. I mean, this year, the weird thing was I did one that. Random House decided to put six of us together for commencement speeches just to put online. And um, I did that one and I did another one via Zoom for a, a prep school. And I, I I think it went okay, but not being there, not being in front of an audience, not seeing those faces in front of you, it was uh, odd and disconcerting. And I hope that if I get asked to do one next year, I'll be able to do it in person. And what do you think the message would be? I, I, I've, see, I've seen that, you know, things have tweaked from the GFC to the election of Trump to what do you think the 2021 commencement speech would, would have as, as a thread? Oh, my dear God. I mean, you'd be talking, <laughs> you'd be talking about um, young people who have been challenged and tested in a way probably that no young, no generation has been since America got into the Second World War. I'd have to to think a lot about that, but it would have, talk about coming to play, you would have to write a really good speech for those kids. Well, I know you would, Anna. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. I feel like you've cast a beam of light over the art form of the commencement. Um, we really appreciated having you on. Thank you, Tony. Speakola. Before we get to the speech of the week, which is the Washington University speech, I do want to say thank you to Anna by promoting a few of her books. Nanaville is a big-hearted book of wisdom, wit, and insight, celebrating the love and joy of being a grandmother. It came out a couple of years ago and is one of Anna Quinlan's numerous non-fiction titles that you can find on her website. And she's also got a novel that's just been released called Alternate Sides, set in suburban New York. It's a drama around different families living in a street and it picks up on some of the issues that she spoke about in the podcast, about the divisions that are emerging in American life. Anna's website is annaquinlan.net. 
I'll also say that Anna mentioned quite a few speeches in her interview there, and most of them are on Speakola. You can check out Lincoln's first inaugural with the better angels of our nature quote. We've even got some Oswald Mosley promoting fascism in England in the 1930s. We've got some Joseph McCarthy up there as well. Anna mentioned that. We got Hillary Clinton at Wellesley in 1969. The hollow men of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. And we got Mario Cuomo at the 1984 Democratic National Convention. And as Anna said, that is one of the outstanding speakers. Well, we've heard the eloquence of Anna Quinlan in an off-the-cuff interview format, and we've also heard that she works very hard to come up with a careful script at an occasion like a commencement. Well, let's hear one now. On the 19th of May, 2017, Anna Quinlan addressed the graduating students of Washington University in St. Louis. A storm saturated the campus in the early morning, but then the skies cleared to a glorious day, and Anna delivered a glorious speech. You may hear her competing with something that sounds a little bit like a brass band at some points. That's just something that's on the audio track on YouTube. But otherwise, this is just the voice of a speaker in full control. I'm honored to introduce you to one of America's most accomplished and heralded writers, Anna Quinlan. Thank you, Chancellor Wrighton, and thank you so much for the profound honor of addressing the Washington University community on this very special day. Commencement speeches are very difficult to craft, even in a year when the country doesn't seem to be going through a nervous breakdown. <laughs> After all, no one is here to hear me. Everyone is here for the sake of just a few words the name of someone they love, or their own name. It's almost the only thing I remember from my own commencement, even though the legendary anthropologist Margaret Mead was the commencement speaker. I don't even remember the weather, although you probably won't forget yours. I remember these three words, Anna Marie Quinlan, and the look on my father's face. But it's particularly hard to craft a message for people like you. Because you're receiving a degree today from Washington University, I know this about all of you. You are what my grandmother used to call the smart ones. <laughs> the children of the 99th percentile. The men and women of the top decile, accustomed to high test scores and high hopes. You are the people who make the checklists, who come up with plans, who are invested always in the right answer. I know this because I am one of you. And this is what I've learned, often with great difficulty. The checklist should be honored mostly in the breach. The plans are a tiny box that followed slavishly will smother you, and the right answer is sometimes the wrong answer. 
What are the public names you recall sitting there of those people who did exactly what was considered the right thing, who followed the template, who met expectations? You cannot come up with one of them because the people we know, the people we admire, the people whose names we carve into the cornices of buildings and see on the cover of books are deviants in the best sense of that term. Jane Austen threw out the plan for a well-bred Regency-era woman. Frank Lloyd Wright threw out the plan for a young architect of his time. Bill Gates, Oprah Winfrey, Enrico Fermi, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Martin Luther King, Marie Curie, Pablo Picasso, Toni Morrison, they all threw out the plan. The right answer was safe. The wrong answer, the one no one else came up with or followed or believed in, was transformational. Ah, you say to yourself sitting there, I cannot expect to be Jane Austen or Frank Lloyd Wright. But what you can embrace is a life that feels like it belongs to you, not one made up of tiny fragments of the expectations of a society that frankly, in most of its expectations, is not worthy of you. And that requires courage, not compliance, passion in lieu of simply plans. Smart is good. Smart and hardworking is really good. Smart, hardworking, and fearless, that's the hat trick. You possess an invaluable credential that will soon be ratified here. But are you strong and smart enough to become who you might be were you not afraid? That's the problem, isn't it? We slavishly seek what is correct because we are afraid. Caution is nothing but fear dressed up as common sense. Coloring books have come back into vogue for adults because there is nothing quite so soothing as coloring inside the lines. <laughs> the road less traveled, popular poem, unpopular life choice. The well-trod road is so much safer. But I tell you absolutely that the most terrifying choices I made in my life and the ones that other people saw as most foolhardy are the ones that brought greatest rewards. Because of some strange little voice inside, I zigged where I was expected to zag. I traded more good jobs than most people had ever had for new roles I thought were even scarier and chancier and potentially more rewarding. I took the ultimate flying leap in life and had three children in five years while my career was at its very peak. Five years in, I left the op-ed page of the New York Times to become a full-time novelist. The publisher told me that I was the first person to willingly give up a Times column. Someone wrote that my decision showed that women are afraid of success. <laughs> but I'm not afraid of success. I'm afraid of living a life that seems more like a resume than an adventure story that doesn't feel as though it belongs to me, a life full of dreams deferred until they evaporate entirely with the call of custom. None of you want to have that sort of life, so you can't let fear rule you for your own sake and for the sake of this great nation. Fear is what has poisoned our culture, our community, and our character. The very worst things in this country are done out of fear. 
homophobia, sexism, racism, religious bigotry, xenophobia, the embrace of demagogues, they all arise out of fear of that which is unknown or different. Our political leaders don't actually lead when they are afraid of being thrown out of office. Our corporations resist real innovation because they're afraid of taking a chance. In my former business, the news business, which I was proud and continue to be proud to call home, fear is the greatest of enemies. Without fear or favor, the business has to provide readers, listeners, and viewers with searching stories, even if those are stories the powerful do not want you to hear or believe and do not want us to publish or disseminate, even if they are stories that offend and rage and distress the very readers we are bound to inform. What is the point of free speech if we are always afraid to speak freely or if we embrace an echo chamber? If we embrace an echo chamber in which liberals talk only to other liberals and conservatives only to other conservatives and moderates feel as though no one's talking to them. As an opinion columnist, nothing was more important to me before I wrote on any issue than to listen to those people who were in opposition to my position. You cannot marshal a cogent argument without knowing the counterpoint. Yet too often we fall silent, becoming our own censors out of fear. If we fail to allow the unpopular or even the unacceptable to be heard because of some sense of plain vanilla civility, it's not civility at all. It is a denigration of the human capacity for thought, the suggestion that we are incapable of disagreement, argument, or intellectual combat. It is the denial of everything this university stands for. We parents sitting out there have known fear on your behalf, make no mistake. We grew up with a simple equation. Our children would do better than we had. In my father's Irish Catholic household, it was a simple equation ditch digger, to cop, to lawyer, to judge in four generations. My mother's Italian immigrant parents barely spoke English. Their granddaughter is a novelist. That's the American story. Many of my generation fear that doing better is not in the cards for you. We feel chagrined that you won't inherit the SUV, the McMansion, the corner office, that you won't do better than we did, but you are going to define what doing better means and do it better than we did. Because if you are people who see race and ethnicity, sexual orientation and gender identity as attributes, not stereotypes, you will have done better than us. If those of you who are male recognize in every way that those of us who are female are capable, equal, and human, and live that in the way you behave every day, you will have done better than us.
And on a more personal level, if you as a group ditch what has somehow become the 80-hour work week and return us to a sane investment in our personal and professional lives, you will have done better than us. Those of us of my generation have worked hard to pass on a better world. But we sometimes made a grave mistake in thinking that doing better was mathematical when it's actually spiritual. Perhaps my favorite quote, and the one I evoke most often, is from the great writer Henry James. Three things in human life are important. The first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. If you follow those words in public service and private life, you will have done better. Because we have today a world with too much of the kindness leached out of it, that is too often mean-spirited, that seems to have lost track of the most valuable verse from the New Testament, the one about loving your neighbor. Perhaps that's because we've forgotten how to be kind to ourselves. The right answer about how we should be, how we should behave is today so often a punitive one. We should be thinner, richer, slicker, surer. We should be tougher, harder. That's all nonsense. I can assure you that when I look back over my life, thin and rich will be two of the last things I really care about. <laughs> Loving kindness, as Buddhism calls it, that's what matters. That's what lasts, that and giving up on the right answer. In my line of work, the honorable creative failure is infinitely more important and more useful than the careful little connect the dots paragraph. You have to have the courage to frighten yourself with what you attempt, whether it is a startup or a family, a novel or a marriage. You're lucky people, all of you. Most Americans will never get the kind of education you've earned here. In a culture in which knowledge seems to be moving at the speed of sound, the one thing that's never obsolete is a world-class university education. In a recent interview, the CEO of Logitech said he loves hiring English majors. And I don't just mention that because I was an English major. <laughs> Critical thinking is a skill that never goes out of style. But being the lucky ones confers great responsibility and even a moral obligation. It is to model a particular kind of life, a life of audacity. America is greatest when it is audacious. Never forget that this is a nation built on non-compliance, begun with righteous resistance against the despotism of the privileged class. It is called the American Revolution not the American compromise. It is audacious to come here from another country without language or means and add to the fabric of this polyglot place. It is audacious to send your child off to college when no one in your family has ever been before. It is audacious to work to overturn laws and customs that for centuries have held fellow citizens as less than. 
It is audacious. It is audacious to invent, and it is audacious to dare, and it is audacious to care, and to live that caring conspicuously. Playing it safe is a slog. Taking a chance is getting on a skateboard. When you come up with the checklist, job, check, spouse, check, home, check, don't forget to ask yourself, are these the things I really want, or is each of them what I assume I ought to want? The difference between those two is the difference between a life and an existence. T.S. Eliot, only those who risk going too far can possibly find out how far they can go. George Eliot, or as it's now safe to call her, Mary Ann Evans, it is never too late to be what you might have been. It is never too early either. The status quo, business as usual, the way things have always been done, even if you will the right answer, has failed us in nearly every area of life. Fear of setting a foot wrong, of criticism and judgment and even failure is unworthy of people like you. The voice you should sometimes heed is the one that tells you you can't, you shouldn't, it's too much, it's too chancy. Don't heed the fear. The fear a young English woman in a parsonage more than 200 years ago refused to acknowledge when she wrote Pride and Prejudice. The fear a neophyte architect refused to let steer his vision as he created uncommon buildings. When I send a gift to a newborn, I always include the message, welcome to the world. Today I offer you a variation. Welcome to my world. It's a world of achievers, planners, list makers but it is greatest when it was, is the world that says, be brave, take the leap, do it, dare it, courage, congratulations. What a brilliant speech and what a great episode to be involved in. I've listened to it over and over in the edit and enjoyed it every time. Thank you so much, Anna Quinlan. Please check out her books at annaquinlan.net. There are some great ones out. I want to say thank you to Greenskin and Purpleskin Avocados, their website now, greenskinavocados.com.au. I've loved receiving emails and notes about people enjoying the podcast. It seems to be going really well getting great numbers of downloads. Um, It helps if you share the news on Twitter or Facebook and tell people that you're enjoying it. And also if you put a like or a rating or a review, even better, if you do me that little favour in the iTunes podcast section. If you've got an idea for a great speaker as a podcast guest, I love hearing them. Tony at tonywilson.com.au And if you've got a great speech that you want to send in, to put on the Speakola website, submissions at speakola.com. I'm an author and a speaker myself. That's how I make my money. Not a lot of speaking going on at the moment in lockdown, but my books are available. If you want to check them out, they're at tonywilson.com.au. If you're an Australian rules football fan, you may like 1989, the great grand final. If you like backstories to nursery rhymes, you might like Humpty Dumpty sat on the slide. Illustrated by my Italian illustrator, Laura Wood. Thanks again. See you in October. And I think our guest is going to have a Hong Kong flavour. See you then.